I want to add to Chris's thanks for the praise band. I really appreciated their singing and just the preparation um, as we're getting ready for this message. Um, I think the last word, the last song was, Through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. And um, I think we've all experienced that. So, thankful. I'd like to begin the message today with a few questions. What is it that Christians need? And to add to that, what is it that Christians need in difficult times? Phrasing that same question a little bit differently, what does the church need? And what does the church need in the midst of suffering? Now a little more specific. As part of New Testament church life here at Northern Hills Bible Chapel, what has God provided for us? Of course, it it helps if we know that Christ is our victor in difficulty. It helps if we know the life principle, you know, the Lord is faithful endlessly. And it helps if we have the prayer support of other believers. It helps if we can rely on the comfort, the strength, and the truth of God's word. And it helps a lot if we can go completely beyond what we can even comprehend to see what God will do in our lives. But besides all of this, what else has God given to his flock here at Northern Hills Bible Chapel? We find our answer in 1 Peter chapter 5. Here, Peter is offering encouragement and help to Christians by means of the elders. It's in this passage that Peter urges elders to shepherd God's flock. It's here that he provides a job profile for an elder that we get to read. But before we read our passage, let's try to begin thinking of just how it is that we actually view the ministry of the elder here at the chapel. And to help us do that, let's try to recall the different kinds of boats, ships, or vessels that we've either been on or that we've seen. Which boat or ship do you think best represents the ministry of an elder here at the chapel? For example, are we a cruise ship? We're the passengers, and the elders are running around trying to keep the passengers happy. That's one perspective. Perhaps we're a barge. I think we've all seen a barge going down the Ohio River. And the elders are the tugboat, the towboat, providing the power that Through their leadership and guidance, we keep moving forward. Perhaps we're a sailing vessel. This one's a little tougher, I think, because this is where the elders are trying to keep our chapel on course, fighting the ever-changing winds of our culture and its ever-changing values, but hopefully relying on the unchanging anchor of God's word. Or perhaps we're just a small pontoon boat, and there it's the job of the elders to just keep us afloat. Or one final vessel to consider, a battleship. A battleship where the elders always have the enemy on their radar, and they are equipped with a proven battle plan that they're ready to use because they've been listening to the orders of their captain. So, having pondered our elder-boat-vessel comparison, I trust and pray that the Holy Spirit is going to help us to navigate this portion of Scripture. 
for it's in 1 Peter 5, 1-5, that we can gain insight into the ministry of an elder. And then, along with that, our elders can assess how they're doing in following Peter's instructions. Now, with that in mind, my first thought for a title for this passage was Every Elder's Exam. I like it. It's got the alliteration thing going, three E's, easy to remember. Okay, but, but, as I thought about it, there's a basic problem with that title. It's wrong. Okay? That's not what Peter's trying to do in this passage. He's, he doesn't want to put some suffering saints under the pressure of taking a test. He's not saying, answer these questions, turn in your answers, and I'll let you know before I leave whether or not you should continue as an elder. No, that's not what he's doing at all. He's doing just the opposite. Peter is giving the elders the answer sheet to every elder's exam. So that'll be our title for 1 Peter 1-5, through 5, the answer sheet to every elder's exam. My hope and my prayer, and I so appreciate those who have been praying, my hope is that I'm faithful to the truth of God's word this morning as we look at this passage. And we'll look at it verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and in some cases, word by word. So let's read our passage and then pray. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we have the opportunity now to spend time in your word. And we'd ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would teach us what it is that Peter intended for the readers and hearers of this letter to hear. And again, Lord, thank you that we are now the readers and the hearers of this letter. So we would ask, Lord, that you would help us to take your word to heart. And may your spirit teach us accordingly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the New American Standard, the first word of our passage in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, is therefore. Now your translation may or may not have this word, as 34 out of the 61 versions available in the online tool Bible Gateway include that word, but 27 versions do not. Either way, whether your version has it or not, we know that the importance of looking at the context of a verse or passenger is crucial whenever we're studying God's word. And that is what the word therefore reminds us to do. In the context of 1 Peter chapter 5, it's all about suffering, right? It's all about suffering on the part of the Christian. That's what we've seen throughout our study in 1 Peter. So 1 Peter teaches us that suffering is part of the DNA as a biblical born-again Christian. We all know that we experience very real sorrow. But it's not 
a sorrow or a type of suffering that should lead us to discouragement or to a life of depression. In chapter 4, verse 13, as part of our context, we read this. But rejoice. It's been a key word this morning. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So here we see suffering and rejoicing in the same verse. It's not as if our suffering as a Christian is a, is a woe is me kind of thing. For the Christian, even if suffering leads to death, we have the promise and the assurance of eternal life. It's in this context of suffering and rejoicing that Peter gets the attention of the elders by stating, I exhort the elders among you. Here, Peter is encouraging, urging, appealing to the elders as he wants to be certain that the elders listen up. And look how he describes the elders as those who are among the people. Peter's mention of the presence of the elders in relation to the flock is good to know. The elders aren't somewhere off in the distance. No, they know the people because they are among them. They're nearby when the flock is suffering. They know when they're suffering because they spend time with them. And since our passage references a flock and some sheep, I'd like to share a few sheep facts. Sheep fact number one. Sheep are natural grazers. It's just what they do. Okay? And related to sheep fact is something I had never heard of before. It's sheep fact number two. is that sheep have no top front teeth. And why is that? Well, it's so they can eat the vegetation and the grass close to the ground while preventing them from accidentally pulling up the plant roots and the grass and destroying the lands that they graze. The elder shepherd who is among the sheep needs to know where we graze. It's not like they have to know where our favorite restaurant is. I'm not saying that. But we would at least hope that our elders know us, not just because they see us here at the chapel, but because they know what life is like for us in our everyday lives, outside this building where we graze. A diligent shepherd knows if one of his sheep is stuck, and they know when they're being threatened. He knows when they're sick, and he knows when they're unable to keep up with the rest of the flock. A good shepherd knows the many dangers of being a sheep. Do you know what a cast sheep is? This is our final sheep fact. So sheep fact number three. A cast sheep is a sheep that's rolled over onto its back due to the weight of its wool, which can happen any time, but especially if the sheep gets wet. When this happens, they need immediate help. Sheep needs to call 911 immediately. And what happens here, they are unable to get back over, as I mentioned. And they can actually die within a short period of time if they're not rolled back into a normal position. So, just as a shepherd needs to be among the sheep, an elder needs to be among the people. Still in verse 1, Peter describes himself as your fellow elder. He's not putting himself above the elders. Rather, he's including himself among the church leaders to whom he was exhorting, urging, and appealing. I think there was a time when Peter might have worried about his position, you know, who's going to be first, but that time was past. Peter, in true humility, describes himself as a fellow elder. 
not a superior. He doesn't flex his apostolic muscles over the elders, but rather he exhorts his audience as a fellow elder. He wants them to know that he sees himself as one of them. Peter then continues to relate to them, not only as a fellow elder, but also as a witness to the sufferings of Christ. 5.1 Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. They were going through suffering. Remember our context. Peter relates to this suffering as he writes about witnessing the sufferings of Christ. Peter saw the agony of Jesus in the garden. He saw his arrest and mistreatment at his trial. He had seen the scars in the risen Savior's hand and side. When we consider Christ's pain and agony, we can see why suffering is in the DNA of the Christian. Peter himself was flogged and ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus. He identified with his readers by acknowledging the suffering that was occurring in the church and by referring to his own suffering for the cause of Christ. But in verse 1, he doesn't dwell on his suffering. No, no woe is me here. He's quick to say that he's also a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. A partaker is one who participates with another in a project or in a matter of shared concern. And here, Peter references the most glorious project ever to be completed. It will be a day that is coming when all of Christ's glory will be revealed. Let's go to the scriptures to learn of this glory. Peter referenced it back in chapter 1 of this book. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. There, he assured the saints of an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. It's an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. In verse 5, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now Paul he wrote to the Roman saints about this future glory. And that's in Romans 8, verses 17 and 18. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now Paul repeats this for hope again. Reminding the Colossian saints in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So our suffering is not an end in itself. No, it's, it's suffering with anticipation of sharing in the glory of Jesus Christ. So yes, suffering is in the DNA of the Christian but the anticipated glory of Jesus Christ is also in our DNA. It was Matthew Henry who said this, Christ himself went by the cross to the crown, and we must not think of going in any other way. With this ultimate glory in mind, Peter now instructs his fellow elders in verse 2 of our passage to shepherd the flock of God among you. So Peter 
begins this answer sheet to every elder's exam by telling his fellow elders to do exactly what Jesus had told him to do in John 21, which was to feed and shepherd his sheep. I think the ownership issue here is important to emphasize. In 1 Peter 5.2, we see whose flock it is. It is the flock of God. It belongs, we belong to God. The elders have been given the privilege and the responsibility of caring for the flock, but they don't own the flock. Our culture would have us believe that we own our home, our car, and our finances. The Bible says otherwise, right? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it all belong to the Lord. Acknowledging God's ownership of everything, that's the starting point to living a life of stewardship. Managing well what God has provided. In the same way, elders are stewards of the flock of God among them. The fact that it is God's flock reminds the elders that they're not the owners, but they must give an account to the owner. Based on what we experience here at the chapel, my perspective is that our elders know that it is that it is the flock of God and not the individual flocks of Evan, Phil, Abe, Mike, Mickey, or Ryan. By the way, between these six men, we have 119 years of elder ministry here at Northern Hills Bible Chapel. And a role that each of these men provide in the plurality of the elders' ministry here at the chapel, a role that they all share as they shepherd God's flock, is that of exercising oversight. What does that mean, exercising oversight? Well, obviously, it includes sight, seeing. And the elders can't exercise oversight if they can't see clearly and understand accurately what it is that is going on in the chapel. But oversight is still more than just seeing. It's sight plus responsibility. To exercise oversight means that when you see something amiss, you're responsible to do something about it. This oversight, this watching over, if you will, also includes spiritual feeding and spiritual guarding. It also includes knowing who needs extra care and or if any correction is needed. There are those times when elders need to provide oversight by utilizing church discipline. Exercising oversight may mean going after strays all the time trying to keep the well-being of the entire flock in mind. This exercise of oversight, if you will, it requires both courage and compassion. And Peter continues in verse 2 by providing the proper attitude and the motivation for an elder. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. But how? Not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Peter says in his answer key for every elder's exam that the key for an elder to exercise proper oversight is for him to approach his ministry with a very willing heart. This is a ministry that is not done under compulsion, not by constraint, and not because no one else will do it. Rather, the motivation needs to be voluntarily, willingly, it was back in 1917, a young C.S. Lewis, he won a scholarship to Oxford University. He studied for many years just to, to get the scholarship. But after winning the scholarship, 
Lewis dropped everything to voluntarily join the British Army as an officer to go fight in Europe's great war. He fought and he was wounded by a shell. The shell actually killed the man next to him. It was back on April the 15th in 1918. So C.S. spent the rest of his time as a soldier recovering in a hospital. He didn't have to go to the Great War, at least not when he did. But he joined because he couldn't bear the thought of being drafted into the army. As if to say that he wasn't willing to put his body between those he loved and those who would do them harm unless the government forced him to do so. Elders? Elders are volunteer army, not a draft. That's Peter's point in verse 2. They're to serve at the inward compelling of God's Spirit, out of a deep desire, not out of compulsion. A forced elder under compulsion is not an elder according to the will of God. Peter then gives the elders another motivational checkpoint. An elder should not be exercising oversight for sordid gain. The NIV puts it not pursuing dishonest gain. Unfortunately, the ways of men are selfish. And in the life of an elder, there can be the temptation to look for ways to be served. If that happens, an elder can end up as an enemy of the very flock that they are to be tending. A misguided shepherd who seeks to be served rather than to serve has lost his love for the sheep. There can be no selfish, dishonest, material motivation for being an elder. It can't be a matter of selfish ambition. An elder, according to the will of God, doesn't become an elder because he wants to make a name for himself among the brethren. He doesn't arrive on the scene thinking how he's going to build his spiritual resume as he focuses on the many ways that he's going to serve the needs of the chapel. Oswald Chambers says that we all, we all have to ask ourselves, are we more devoted to service than we are to Jesus Christ? For the elders, as they consider their ministry, they might ask to Psalm 48, I delight to do your will, O my God. Does that describe their eldership? If their answer to that question is yes, then an elder is more likely to be serving with eagerness, as described at the end of verse 2. The King James translates that with eagerness, with a ready mind, ready to serve. It's all about attitude. I'll call it a scriptural 5-2 attitude, with eagerness or with a ready mind. It's the opposite of serving under compulsion. It's the same word that Paul used in Romans 1.15, I am so eager to preach the gospel. It's having a strong willingness to serve. It's having a keen expectancy. It's an excitement about serving the Lord as an elder. It's Aspen, Melody, Teddy, any other child anticipating Christmas. It's the difference between a scripturally 1 Peter 5.2 motivated shepherd described in our passage and an unmotivated hired hand who works because he's being paid, but maybe just the minimum. But the shepherd described in our passage works because he loves the sheep and he's got a heart devoted to them as he caringly spends time among them with eagerness. And now verse 3 continues with the fine-tuning of how to provide oversight. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. The word translated lording it over it's a long Greek word, katakiriuntes. 
Not that that matters, because I can only say that if I'm looking at it. That word, though, includes the idea of domineering, as in the rule of a strong person over one who is weak. An elder needs to be a leader, but not a dictator. Peter is saying that elders are overseers, but not overlords. Ezekiel said this about domineering shepherds in Ezekiel 34, verses 4 and 5. You have ruled them harshly and brutally, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. A man who serves as an elder because he thinks he's in charge and he likes the power associated with being in charge is no spiritual shepherd. But wait a minute, doesn't verse 3 reference those who are allotted to your charge? Yes, but the word translated allotted to your charge means apportioned by lot and refers to anything that is portioned out, divided up accordingly. And here, God is the one doing the portioning. God is the one entrusting the allotted flock to the elders. I really like the King James Version here. It brings this home well. It translates this first phrase of verse 3 as, Neither as being lords over God's heritage. The flock is God's heritage, not that of the elders. And Peter removes any hint of a domineering mindset by continuing in verse 3, stating that elders should shepherd God's flock by being examples to God's flock. Sheep aren't like cattle. Sheep can't be driven. Peter exhorted the elders not to drive God's people, but to lead by example, demonstrating mature Christian character. Now we are to respect the position of elder without a doubt. The elder himself gains that respect by the godly life he lives and by his sacrificial service. His home, his work, his retirement life, all these should be evidence of a mature Christian. When the elders begin to consider someone as a possible elder, he is viewed in light of the qualifications listed in 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 2. But then the following questions need to receive a yes answer. Do we want more families at Northern Hills Bible Chapel to treat one another like this man's family? Do we want more men who are devoted to Christ like this man? Do we want men who treat their money like this man? Do we want more men who treat their marriage like this man? Do we want more like him? Is he one worthy of example as he submits to the true shepherd? By submitting to the true shepherd, elders never lose their awareness that they themselves are still sheep, utterly dependent on the grace of God. It is this utter dependence on the grace of God and a willingness to shepherd his flock, never failing to exercise oversight by shepherding according to the will of God, with an eager, voluntary willingness and setting a godly example that enables Peter to address a future occurrence for an elder in verse 4. Here we see that something's going to happen when this chief shepherd appears, and that is that the elders will receive an unfading crown of glory. Now Peter has already written in 1 Peter 4 verse 7 that the time draws near when Christ's glory will be revealed to everyone. And all the while, during this time, elders in the local church have been serving Christ by serving Christ's sheep, the men, the women, and the children that Jesus loves so dearly. 
So when Christ, the chief shepherd, appears in his glory at the end of all things, for the elders, there will be the unfading crown of glory. Regarding this specific crown, Peter is likely contrasting the leafy crowns awarded to champion athletes during this time period with the eternal glory of this unfading crown. The physical glory of the athlete's crown would fade as the leaves shriveled and died. In contrast, the glory that Christ shares with those who shepherd his flock will be everlasting and so much better than any earthly recognition by a physical crown or medal or anything. So serving as an elder in the local church, it's difficult, no doubt. And it's made all the more challenging in times such as these, times of persecution and suffering. But Peter's instructions prove that it is easy to do this task badly. How? By serving reluctantly, for personal gain, in a domineering and a controlling way. An elder could work hard, all the while striving for the applause of men. But how foolish. When the unfading ground of glory awaits for those elders who serve according to God's design as willing, volunteer, eager, eager examples. What a joy I think it would be for an elder to acknowledge that all that was done in their ministry was because of the grace of Jesus Christ. I think the common course of the elders regarding their crown of glory might be, it was all you, Jesus, all because of your grace, all to your glory. I would think that an elder focused on Jesus reads verse 4 here with hands and heart lifted in thanks to God. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now we come to the last portion of our passage. I'm going to call this the VIP of our passage because it's a very important portion. You younger ones, likewise, be subject to your elders and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Let's, let's address this younger ones. Who are they? Okay. Who are these younger men? Well, interestingly enough, the word here can be translated younger ones, but it could also mean younger in age. It could mean younger in the faith. And it could mean anyone younger than the elders. And it could mean anyone who is not an elder. After all, there's no age restriction when it comes to submitting. Nowhere dare we read, you must be 21 or younger in order to submit to the elders. Nor do we read, you must be 21 or older to submit to the elders. Age is not the issue. We'll never find an age group exemption for not having to submit to the elders. It's really an issue of the heart for everyone, young or old, elder or no elder. In verses 1 through 4, the elders demonstrate their humility as they first submit to the Lord and then to one another as elders. Now in verse 5, Peter provides another answer on the answer sheet to every elder's exam. You younger men, and the word we emphasize here is likewise, likewise, in the same manner, just like the elders are subject to one another, be subject to your elders. Here Peter calls those under the care of the elders to be subject to those elders. Now in the Greek, after much study, the phrase be subject to the elders means be subject to the elders. It means to listen to them, to follow them, to obey them, to submit to them. A younger man who submits or anyone else in the chapel who submits, 
understands that our elders have been recognized, appointed, called, led to lead. And in order to lead, they need to be trusted and followed. One who submits himself to the chapel will not set themselves up as an independent review committee for every decision that an elder makes. Now, it doesn't mean that he or she will never ask questions. There's a place for voicing concerns and, and feedback, and, and these, this feedback and concerns are frequently requested by the elders. But the key here is that all must be done in humility. Okay, so humility is the attitude of choice. How do we do it? Well... Of course, humility begins in our heart and our mind, but according to our passage, it also begins by us checking our apparel. What is it that we're wearing? This checking our our apparel, it applies to all, elders included, as the verse reads, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. This is a rather unique word. It actually referred to an apron which a servant would put on before doing his tasks. No doubt, Peter was recalling Jesus wearing this apron of humility as he washed the disciples' feet. I think we all need to look in our closets. What are we wearing? Maybe we need to ask, who's our tailor? As we might need a new fitting. There might be too much pride in my heart causing my apron of humility to be too tight. It just doesn't fit. So far as I know, the Bible never exhorts us to think in and of ourselves more highly of ourselves than we already do. In other words, the Bible doesn't tell us to go improve your self-esteem as all of the self-help literature would teach. Moses. So when Moses told the Lord that he couldn't speak well enough to lead Israel out of Egypt, God didn't say to him, Moses, you need to go work on your self-esteem. You're really terrific. You can do it. No. Instead, God confronted Moses with his lack of trust in God's ability. God didn't correct Moses' low view of himself. Rather, he challenged Moses' inadequate view of God. Humility is directly linked linked to how we see God. Jonathan Edwards says this, that the whole gospel and all of God's dealing with us are calculated to bring about in us a lowly attitude towards ourselves. And I would add that this lowly attitude towards ourselves needs to coincide with a very high attitude towards God. A biblical def- definition of humility is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. I think our issue is that we doubt the Lord's sufficiency because we're too busy hanging on to what we think is our sufficiency. That's called pride. If that's the case, then we're missing our apron of humility. We've forgotten. We've not taken to heart the last part of our very important portion. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter quoted Proverbs 3.34 here to emphasize God's different attitudes toward the proud and the humble. Here, God is giving us a choice. Do we want his opposition or do we want his grace? Think of it like this. Do we really want to step into the boxing ring with God? Do we really want to be opposed by him? In the 1600s, in his book on the Beatitudes, the Puritan Thomas Watson 
He wrote, He who is swollen with an opinion of self-excellency and self-sufficiency leaves no room for Jesus. He's full already. If the hand be full of pebbles, it cannot receive gold. Until we're poor in spirit, Christ is never precious. Listen to yourself talk this week. Ask yourself, am I clothed with humility or am I preoccupied with myself? We can be preoccupied with our greatness or with our sense of smallness. Either way, preoccupation with ourselves is pride. Regarding preoccupation with greatness, that's pretty easy to recognize. Boasting, boasting, boasting. Preoccupation with smallness, that's a little tougher to discern because we have to recognize in ourselves a false humility. Someone compliments you and you say, ah, it was nothing, I'm just a humble servant. Having just boasted about your humility, right? And boasting equals pride. You've probably heard it said that humility is so elusive because just when you think of you got it, you lost it. I've said that, but that's, that's wrong. Could you see Jesus or Paul saying those words? Both Jesus and Paul called themselves humble with no explanation. Jesus said this in Matthew 11:29, I am gentle and humble in heart. In Acts 20, verse 19, Paul describes himself as serving the Lord in all humility. Neither undercut their humbleness. Scripturally, humility is Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Remember that apron that we talked about? I think if we look closely on the tag, you know that tag that tells you how to take care of it? You know the little one with those, those care instructions? I think we would find this verse, Philippians 2, 3 and 4. When we consider others better than ourselves, our chapel can't help but be spiritually healthy. Gone is the ungodly sounds of discontented sheep and grumbling shepherds. When we're clothed with humility, there's a gentleness, a respect, and an overall loving spirit that permeates the entire church body. Why does it work that way? Because of our verse. God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's why Jonathan Edwards said this, Nothing sets a man so far out of the devil's reach as much as humility. For the elders and for all of us, the garment of humility needs to be part of our everyday clothes. It's this apron that leads us to count each other as more significant than ourselves and it leads us to love one another as it opens the way for God's grace to make a difference. It makes a difference in how the elders lead and it makes a difference in how we respond as together we reach out both to one another and to those beyond our chapel. We'll end with a Ukrainian elders correspondence. It was received from an elder back on February the 25th, 22. And it was um, an elder and his wife who they were actually ministering in the, at a chapel in Ukraine. On that date, Timothy Sloan shared this. This is quite possibly our last means of correspondence for some time. War is imminent and the consequences are dreadful. A state of emergency has been declared, and this will be followed by martial law. Young Ukrainian men from 16 years of age are being called up to serve in the military 
and Ukrainians are being given the right to carry arms. A major cyber attack is happening just now, as we write, which has affected Ukrainian banks as well as government websites. Ukrainian citizens are being asked to urgently leave Russia, and our local currency is in freefall. Rhoda and I are not leaving. How can we? As an elder in the assembly, my responsibility is to shepherd at all times. It would be a terrible testimony to get up and leave the believers where we are called to serve. We have been preparing for this day. Rhoda and I have brought in generators, fuel, food, as we'd like to turn the assembly hall into a place of shelter to accommodate and feed the assembly believers who will face many a hardship. God is about to give us a great opportunity to show our Christian faith practically and to help us reach out into our community with the gospel. Now, fortunately, this was not their last correspondence. It's just a few weeks ago. Dave shared their missionary letter indicating their ongoing ministry still occurring there in Ukraine. So, friends, we see Timothy and his wife Rhoda among the people in the midst of suffering with an eagerness to serve. Tim exercising a caring oversight voluntarily, willingly, being examples to the flock and each exercising humility one to another. This is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 in action. They wear, they wear their efforts very well, don't they? May we do the same. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for our elders. May you guide them, help them to see what needs to be seen and to provide the oversight that is needed. And Father, we would ask that you would encourage and strengthen them through the power of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.